woman walked into a bank in New York City and she told the banker that she wanted a loan for $5,000 so she could go to Europe. And the banker said, well, we're going to have to have some sort of collateral. And she said, that's no problem. So she handed him the keys and the title to a Rolls Royce. And he thought that was a little bit suspicious, so he went ahead and did a background check and a credit check. And it turned out everything was on the up and up, and it was her car. So he goes ahead and gives her the $5,000, and she leaves. And a week later, she comes back, and she says, I'm ready to pay off my debt and get my car back. He said, well, that'll be $5,000 plus $5 interest. She says, that's no problem. So she gave him all of the money. And before she left, the banker said, ma'am, I don't want to be forward, but it's obvious that you're a very wealthy woman. I don't understand why you had to borrow $5,000 to take a trip to Europe. She said, that's a pretty good question. Where else in New York City can I pay $5 to park a Rolls Royce for a week and expect it to be there when I get back? friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Hayes Carl. Hayes is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Austin, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Hayes at HayesCarl.com. Hayes was nice enough to stop by my house here in East Nashville, and uh, we recorded a lot of stories. He told a lot of great road stories, and we had a lot of fun. And uh, people really seem to enjoy last week's. So uh, I should probably jump right into it because there's a lot to get to. Here's part three of Hayes Carl. Yeah, I, I went through a phase last year where I, I, I tried to get into uh, a little better shape. And so I started joining all these... <laughs> <laughs> all these leagues so i joined a basketball league bruce robeson was on my team and uh and that was i that i wasn't ready for that that was a pack a day habit will uh will kill your basketball abilities pretty quick you know um started playing uh softball in this sort of beer softball league with my buddies got a bunch of high school friends that were in this league and we went and started off in like the the high division, and we, we you know we'd get beat like thirty to two you know every week, and so we moved down a level, and we still couldn't win a game, and so we moved down to like the uh, the lower league, and and uh, anyway, I'm a, I'm a first baseman, it was my position when I did play baseball, and one night for some reason um, they put me at second base, and uh, I think the other team sensed weakness. <laughs> because since softball it's slow pitch and so nothing ever goes to the right side of the field unless 
they want it to go to the right side of the field, you know, because you have plenty of time. Like you're not, nobody's swinging late on a softball. So I'm out there six foot three, with my, you know, skinny legs. And I, I obviously look uncomfortable and out of place because they're just looking at me and smiling and just whack, whack, whack. And they just hitting ball after ball at me. And, and these, some of these boys are big boys, you know, and you're only 60 feet away with the, the softball. And, and, you know, a lot of these guys are former college players and, Whatever. My point is, it's not a softball, and they hit the shit out of it. And and, but for a while, I'm just holding it down out there. I'm just, I'm, I'm uh, Roberto Alomar, Steve Sachs. I'm blasting it. And uh, but these fields are really bad, and you never know when the ball hits the ground where it's going to go, um, because there's rocks and and holes and whatever. And, and I I remember, you know, my instinct from a kid is you block the ball if a ball is hit to you. You get your body in front of it. It'll hit your chest. It'll sting. You'll make the play. The runner won't advance. You're tough. That's how you do it. And that's just drilled into you from an early age. So these balls are coming, and I'm not thinking twice about like getting out of the way. Like I'm going to block this ball. And and this guy hits a hits a ball, just drills it a one hopper. It hits the ground. I'm I'm ready to play it. And I guess it just shot up, goes straight into my face, knocked out my two front teeth. Broke all the bone in my uh, gums. And then I, I remember sitting there. I, I, I waited till the game was over to go to the hospital. And I went and sat there. And I'm watching now more closely how people field ground balls. And I realized that no one blocks the ball. Like, they olay the shit out of it. Like, if it's coming, they, you know, they'll stick their glove out. But they're literally pulling their body away. And no one had ever told me that that's 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 the common form in, in softball. You can get hurt out there. And, uh, so yeah, that's the story of my. I needed something. I need like a bar fight or riding a bull or. or uh, Were you anonymous when you're out there playing softball, or did people? Hey, that's Hayes Carl at second. Yeah, uh, I, you know it's hard to tell. The, I I feel anonymous uh, most of the time, but then every once in a while, like I'll I'll, I'll go home and see my name on the internet about somebody saying I'm what a bad play I made and, and, <laughs> or, you know, you'll come up and they'll be like, Hey, let, dig your records or, or whatever. And it, it's funny cause there's a different pressure when, it, you know, when you're just anonymous, you're just a bunch of guys. Uh, there's a different pressure when, then, then uh, when they know you or are familiar with you in some way, cause then they feel like they have expectations and, you, and I don't want to let them down. Like the opposing team. <laughs> like, not only can I write songs, I'm going to hit the shit out of this uh, softball here. I'm going to be really impressed. Yeah, I was at a uh, stagecoach in Palm Springs at the uh, country festival on the same grounds as Coachella. At the end of a tour, we we're going to go home, and uh, my manager called me and said, Would you like to go see the Rolling Stones in, in Los Angeles? And I was like, I kind of wanted to, but I kind of wanted to go home as well. I thought it was going to be at the Staples Center or something, and and you know I, I don't like I don't like crowds. I, I didn't want to be in a place of fifteen thousand people from watching a show from a thousand feet away. It's not exciting to me. And he said, "No, this is uh, it's the Echoplex. It's a four hundred seat club, and you'll have you'll be the first guy in the door." And I was like, "Okay, I'll do that." <laughs> That's a dream. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, and, and I went down there, got my tickets, and most of the, you know, they had done some sort of lottery or radio thing, and people called in and bought tickets for 20 bucks. You know, they announced it that day. 
And uh, uh, so anyway, I got my tickets, got to go in there beforehand and walk into this empty club, this little club, and just walk up to the front and stand there. Well, I got a couple of drinks and then I went and I stood there. <laughs> and then people start filing in and and the place fills up. Um, and then the rolling fucking stones come out. And you know, literally from me to you, I'm Jagger's five feet away. He threw water on me. He threw he got the water bottle out. And, <laughs> you know, I could smell Keith's cigarette. And uh, uh yeah, it was incredible, you know. Uh Bobby Keys and they had uh, backup singers and they brought out uh so they had, they had Ronnie and Mick and Keith and Charlie and then they brought out Mick Taylor. And it was like the first time um that he had played in a long time, I don't know if it was fifteen, twenty years, I don't know the whole history, but but at some point, Mick Jagger is like, says, uh, you know, this is actually quite historic. And, uh, and people are just losing their minds. And, and Mick Taylor and Ronnie and Keith, there's some weird dynamic going on there where like, they weren't really playing well together and it was, they looked confused. or It was this weird scene and every song ended like a train wreck. And it was just, I mean, you were just right there in the middle of it. It was just incredible. It was a really incredible night. So you can check that off the list. When I when I first started playing or started writing and gigging, I guess I was 22 and I, I moved down to the Bolivar Peninsula and, and I didn't know there was like contemporary music or I, uh, in what I did or that there was a, a scene of songwriters like this whole Texas country movement that was coming up. I, I was completely unaware of it and I was just on this peninsula that was very remote and removed and isolated and and was listening to you know towns and christopherson and john prine and lyle lovett and whatever that was that was it i I just didn't know their new music had been made and uh and then i find out at a certain point like people start in in texas everybody come tell me have you heard of of uh this guy or that guy or whatever and these guys were just doing gangbusters and i found out there was this whole scene going on of all these these kind of young Texas country songwriters and and I didn't quite get it you know it, it uh, I, I I got the fun element of it but I didn't get from a songwriting aspect all the time uh, and I didn't feel the the depth there and uh, but it seemed like that was that's all you heard about I didn't know there were this whole layer underneath of these songwriters that that were that were doing something maybe less commercial and and uh, a little more thought involved and adam was the first one i found where i i was just blown away and uh it's probably 1999 2000 i think lloyd mains had done a record for him <clears throat> and a friend gave it to me and it was just it it uh it just gave me so much hope uh because i didn't know how you make a living playing music i just you know i was in these bars and then and then all of a sudden i was seeing people who were making living playing music but it wasn't didn't feel like the music i wanted to make and then I saw Adam, and I thought, that's music that means something to me, or, or at least, you know, from a songwriter perspective, this is, there's something going on here that's interesting and intriguing and, and uh, poignant and, you know, made me happy. So I, I don't remember how I met up with him. Uh, through, I think we had a mutual friend named Brian Rung, um, 
that had done some writing with Adam and played with Adam some. And so we used to go and do, you know, trio shows and or Adam and I would do some some shows and it was always it was always just fun to sit back and watch him because he was <laughs> he's a total wild card on stage like you never know what he's gonna do and and it's it uh he changes it up all the time and i never know if it's because he's absent-minded and can't for can't remember what it is what the lyric is or what the guitar part is or if he's just one of those guys who's like uh you know todd in some ways where he's he just uh, it's jazz. He's making it up every night to keep it interesting for him. Because he'll change lyrics, he'll change entire verses, he'll change guitar parts, he'll change the tempo, he'll change all of it, which isn't easy to do when you're just one guy on a guitar, you know. Um, and so you sit there, and half the time you're like, oh, he's forgotten the words, and and how can this be? Um, and then he'll come out with, on the spot, just make up something entirely different and just as cool. And uh, so anyway, he's he's one of my favorite songwriters and one of my favorite humans just a, a really interesting cat adam carroll is he's a beautiful guy and he'll send texts just way out of left field oh lord yeah <laughs> i collect i collect mine I, I, I need to see if i if i backed it all up but i always save my adam carroll phone messages uh i'll get i did one a show one night in uh san marcos at cheatham street warehouse and uh i think it was me and adam and Walt Wilkins, maybe. And after the show, I've got this song called Arkansas Blues. And uh, about a half hour after the show, I get a, a voice message on my phone from Adam just to give you an idea of like what goes on in his mind. He goes, uh, Hayes, uh, I was thinking, uh, would it be like if uh, Christopher Walken sang that song, uh, Arkansas Blues, <laughs> and then and then proceeds to do it as Christopher Walken. So it's Adam Carroll doing Christopher Walken doing Hate Scrawl. And it's like, I hide behind my guitar like a sparrow in the night. Anyway, it was just, who makes that up? Uh, I've only hung out with them in one little stretch. Uh, but it was a really cool experience. Uh, you know, Prine's on my Mount Rushmore of songwriters and and uh, was a huge influence on me. And um, I was doing a gig in, I can't even remember the name of the town now. It was about, a, about an hour south of San Francisco at a winery. And met John, and he asked if I wanted to come out and do an encore with him. Uh, but this is before the show. And, and would, we wanted to sing Paradise. And I said, oh, of course, I would love to. It would be an honor. you know. And to me, this is like the pinnacle. And So I do my set. He does his. And there's a curfew. And they don't let him do an encore after he walks out. And I'm so bummed. You know, I'm just really depressed about it. And he comes backstage and says, hey, sorry, that didn't work out. But uh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm going to be at this Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco. And he said, well, I'll be there, too. Why don't we just do it then? I thought, okay. <laughs> so I go there, and now, instead of in front of 1,000 people, I'm doing it in front of 30,000 people. And so I'm standing backstage. I'm super nervous. He never tells me what verse it is that he wants me to sing. So I have the whole 
song sharpied on my arm. <laughs> you know, just the, like the first words, so I can like know where to start. I, and uh, anyway, he calls me up. He says, oh, "Bring my friend Hayes Carl up," and and uh, now we're friends. And uh, <laughs> twelve hours later, and uh, I get on stage, and he hands me one of his guitars, and he starts trying to play, and his guitar doesn't work. And he's like, Hayes, can you start it for me? So I've gone from, you know, in a matter of minutes, uh, uh, I'm now the band leader, I'm the friend, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and kick the song off uh, in front of 30,000 people. It, it was a super cool uh, moment, one of my all-time favorite musical moments. Were there 30,000 people singing along? I don't remember. I was so, I, I was just, I was barely hanging on. It was it was one of those things where you're like, it was incredibly exciting and thrilling and fun to look back at, but you're also going, please God, just let me get off this stage, you know. And I try I'd look up every once in a while, like I'm a roller coaster, try and go, okay, that's cool, embrace that, but don't fuck up. No, he, I moved to Galveston or to Bolivar the year he died, I think. Because I found the old quarter about about nine months after he had died, and and it started hanging out there. And so, I you know I'm friends with JT, um, his oldest son, and um, and it's it's strange. Like I have this feel like I have this connection with all these people because the old quarter, you know, Rex Bell ran it and um, played bass for Towns, and then all these people that were affiliated in some way. Johnny Guess, uh, old tour manager, all the you know musicians, Mickey White, um, uh, musicians, drug dealers, groupies, friends, admirers, agents, record guys, all these people would come through there, and then they'd have the wake every year, where you get up and and a shot of vodka and some purple grape soda, and and then sing a town song, and that uh, um, on New Year's Day every year. And that was, um, but yeah, that's my connection came from after he had died. I was thinking the other day, I don't know if I, I told you this thing about like with me with Towns, I, I didn't, you know, I was always trying to find who the best songwriters are, like who guys I should be listening to, you know, and, and everybody always said Towns and, and I'd gotten some records and I listened to it and I just couldn't get my head around it. It didn't, it didn't click with me and uh, just, I wasn't connecting in some way. And one night, I was at the old quarter, and I started hanging out there and was really trying to get into the town's thing. And, and uh, um, the bar shut down. There was a guy from Michigan, I can't remember his name, a songwriter. And he came in, and there was maybe three or four locals and the bartenders, and there was maybe a dozen people there. And this guy got up on stage and started singing this song. It was this incredible, beautiful song. And the entire bar starts singing along at you know two thirty in the morning, and and it was just this magical moment. And I go, God damn, that's the most beautiful song I've ever heard. Well, who is that? And uh, I was ready to anoint this Michigan kid like the greatest of all time. And then and they said, Well, that's Towns. That's uh, to live is to fly. And uh, I went home and looked at my records, and I had that song, and I'd heard that song four or five times, and I just, I'd never been able to open up in a way to, like, where I got it. 
and and that night like after that then everything like made sense all the stuff the dark the happy the and and that. it's just interesting how sometimes how you come to a thing affects whether you uh how you feel about it and and also you know where you're at in in your life affects your ability to to receive certain things uh, so i try i try to not rule out stuff um as being good or bad or or getting it or not getting it just i think maybe there's a i'm not in the place or the time where i'm able to to get it but that that at a different time i will be able to and uh, it gives me something to look forward to i do have basketball skills though yeah i should we should uh shoot some hoops sometime my four inch vertical leap is pretty dangerous yeah my follow-away stumble shot. Those are all my favorite moves are yeah. I am from Indiana, you know. Yeah, we should we should do that. I had a I had a merch guy who broke both his arms in a basketball game with me once. Um, this nineteen-year-old kid, and uh, we were playing somewhere in Colorado. And before the show, we went out in this asphalt playground and had a three-on-three game, a basketball, and everyone in my band is like five eight or shorter at the time like i had a lot of uh average to small sized people and we're playing basketball and i remember i was going up for a shot and this guy who was five six i think tried to block me and he was he's also really small and something happened where he just first of all you shouldn't try and be block the boss like like <laughs> the guy who writes the checks you don't want to embarrass him <laughs> so that was I consider it all his own fault, but he, he went up and, and he got undercut accidentally by somebody else and landed and broke both of his arms. We had to fly him home <laughs> from the tour. <laughs> the guy that undercut him, he knew how to keep a job, though. Yeah, yeah, that was my guitar player. I, was like, <laughs> I hated to see somebody get hurt, but well done. <laughs> you will not show up the boss. Well, I appreciate you stopping by and sitting down on the couch with me. Yeah, this is... Uh, Good to be on your turf. <laughs> yeah, we get to be over on in East Nashville instead of uh, Austin. Yeah. This time. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, well, I, I dig what you do. It's really cool. Thanks for having me on for round uh, round two. Might even be round two and three if we'll see how it edits <laughs> out. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Hayes for coming over to my living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Hayes at HayesCarl.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, T-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.